Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Darkness Within radio show tonight. I have with us my co-host, Scott Hamilton from Family Haunts, and I have author Jason McLeod, author of Dark Siege and Dark Siege 2, The Nightmare Returns. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's actually Jason McLeod, but uh, that's okay. okay. It's hard to, it's hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm great, thanks. I'm just back from Salem. I was there all month long. Uh, like I was last year, um, selling my books and just uh, being in the epicenter of uh, of the paranormal and the haunting um, phenomena up there in Salem, Massachusetts for the month. And it was a long, arduous uh, month, but now I'm back trying to uh, regroup and relax and re-energize myself and so many interesting things going on up there. But um, as you know, they happen everywhere. But thank you for having me on the show tonight. Oh, no problem. I've been trying to get you on for quite a long time now, as you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we just could never meet up. So um, maybe you want to tell the folks about your first book and what inspired you to write it and how you got to where you're at now. Sure. Uh, well, gosh, I'll start back when I was a little boy. I always believed that, you know, we're uh, spiritual beings having, having a physical existence and always believed that we are... Uh, you know, individualized aspects of the totality of the creator, not as, you know, in that uh, eloquent word, not in those eloquent words as a young man, but now I understand uh, very clearly what that entails. But I was always interested in spirits, and I was always in the library studying and, um, you know, reading ghost stories. And uh, then I, um, you know, being from Connecticut, I read The Demonologist, which was Ed and Lorraine Warren's uh, collection of their most horrific cases. And uh, that could all be corroborated in a, in a court of law because there's so many people who witness them and people in a position of authority. And uh, that was just quite interesting and, and really opened the door way and swung it wide open as far as uh, understanding that there are m- many more spirits than human spirits you know, lurking about and so forth. So I read that book and it was really frightening for the families involved and I uh, had no interest in really getting involved. I'd heard of the Warrens because, uh, you know, Connecticut's a small state, and they were very well known, of course, and, you know. Um, but it wasn't until six months later, I was with my friend Lou, who was a uh, former Army combat medic and a current paramedic at the time, listening to a radio show in his car about uh, Ed Lorraine Warren investigating the um, the uh, ghost in the house where the movie Three Men and a Baby was filmed. And I, you know, we listened to that quite intently and I turned to Lou and I said, that'd be so cool to work with them. And he said, yeah, no kidding. The very next day he called me and said, you aren't going to believe who just called me. And I asked, well, who? And he said, Ed Warren. And I said, come on, you know, well, uh, Ed was having heart issues way back then and called uh, the chief EMS to recommend a medic for their team. And Lou was a former Army combat medic and uh, current paramedic. And, you know, some of these demonic cases are combat scenarios. So he gave Lou or gave Ed Lou's phone number. And uh, Ed called him and invited him to their Monday night uh, meeting at the Warren School of Paranormalology. And I tried to, I talked to Lou and said, you have to get me in there, right? So what did we do that afternoon? We, we used the universal law of intention to declare our intention. Uh, to work with the Warrens and through the universal law of conscious manifestation. That's how fast this manifested for us. And it was just absolutely astounding. So 
when Lou was talking to Lorraine and told her about this synchronicity, and Lorraine knows all about synchronicities, of course, um, she invited me or told, you know, told him to bring me the following Monday night. Of course, I, I went immediately. And the very first question Lorraine asked me uh, was, how strong is your faith, honey? And I said, I have immense faith. I believe that I and the Father are one. And the second question was, uh, why do you want to get involved in, in work of this nature? And I, uh, you know, explained how I read the demonologist, and I was, you know, uh, concerned for those families and those people who endure these types of things. And she was satisfied with that answer. So the third question was, uh, so it's a calling then? And I said, sure, I believe so. So they welcomed me aboard. And what was really astounding, and when I think about it now, is that they sent Lou and I on our first case the very next night, representing them and Lorraine Warren on our own. <laughs> and that was absolutely, you know, mind-boggling now that I think about it. But uh, they knew we were, you know, we were level-headed and ready and so forth. And But what's fascinating is before I even stepped my stepped foot in that first case, and especially into the first case that Ed took me on, which would involve demonic um, infestation, um, I just knew I was protected. I said, nothing's going to mess with me. Not that I'm going to go poke my finger at it or, you know, you know, poke my finger in the hornet's nest, but I just know who I am. And I said, nothing's going to mess with me, and I know I'm protected. So um, nothing has happened to me, you know, physically, um, as far as any kind of attack, you know, since I started back in 1990. So that was you know, something that's, that's really interesting. And that's actually really why I wrote Dark Siege, A Connecticut Family's Nightmare, because I'll, I'll go back into the history of the, of the whole thing, but I wrote it to warn people, especially paranormal investigation teams, you know, what they could bump into if they keep, you know, delving into the dark corners of this world. And it, although what happened in this case is very rare, where you have actual demonic infestation, oppression, and possession, you know, if you have these things um, occurring, and you don't know how to deal with it, and you don't have people to call upon, especially clergy who are there in a flash, you're in big hot water. And uh, I also, you know, wrote it to teach people to understand who they really are and how to protect themselves properly and uh, how to pray for the protection of the archangels properly and, and, and those types of things. So, um, but getting back to this um, the uh, timeline of how this all happened, so I'd worked on several cases with the Warrens, and then uh, my first um, real psychic experience happened up in a case in Vermont. So we all went up there together. Um, but Lorraine said right from the beginning, the more you're involved in cases of this nature, and it was always that exact quote, cases of this nature, meaning where there's actual spirits involved, not just, you know, people, you know, imagining things, the more your sensitivities will increase and we'll know what those sensitivities become over time. So uh, Lorraine, of course, is a light trans medium. She's clairvoyant, so she can see. And Andy Thompson, who's a good friend of mine to this day as well, is um, was also very clairvoyant and still is. And uh, ghosts actually come to him all the time uh, to help get crossed over. He doesn't have to go find them, which is really interesting. But uh, he was one of the original Warren investigators. In fact, the first, first person that opened the door for me when I uh, went down to the, uh, you know, the museum where we had the classes first night so he was the first one I met and I saw Lorraine in the distance with a big smile on her face so uh, we would go on several cases and we had a case uh, my first demonic case that Ed took me on personally alone um, I go into that 
in great detail. Everything I'm really talking about, I go into great detail in my chapter analysis section of my books, which is something that makes them completely unique. Um, I'll jump back into the Dark Siege again. Dark Siege, you kind of get family's nightmares, a case I investigated, which was the most horrific I've ever experienced, ever. That's why I decided to write about that one first. But what makes it completely unique is the detailed chapter-by-chapter analysis at the end, which is the final 100 pages of the 467-page book um, about my experiences and my beliefs growing up, about how I met the Warrens in my first several cases in detail, uh, and then getting into to why and how these things happen through quantum physics, the laws of attraction and intention and conscious manifestation, how to protect yourself properly, how it's all about vibration, love being the highest frequency and fear being lowest, and, you know, how these things happen. So, um, so again, what we're talking, what I'm discussing with the audience here now is uh, also contained in the chapter analysis section of my books. So, uh, in a case we went into in Vermont, which we almost didn't even make it to, um, we were all experiencing things inside the house, and I said, you know, I want to see, I want to see a ghost, finally. And because Lorraine was discussing who was in, coming into the room and who was already there, and so was Andy. And all of a sudden, my jaw dropped and tears just streamed out of my eyes. And I go, Lorraine, the sadness. And cried my eyes out instantly. And, then, you know, guys can hold back tears. But this was just something that was completely overwhelming. And it was the grief that this one woman, the spirit of a woman, uh, was currently experiencing and I was overcome by that. So that became my sensitivity or my first sensitivity, which was, which is empathy, the ability to pick up emotion. And, uh, that completely changed my life forever. I would have much rather have seen them, Judy, than see, than feel the emotion that I over, that overcame me. Yeah, I know how part. that feels because, um, I get that way also out on investigations. I get very emotional. I can feel like everything. I even have it like within, say if a, a close family member or a close friend and, and they have like, I don't know, something going on with them, I, I feel that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not fun. It really isn't. Well, it's interesting. It changed my life forever for sure. And um, it happened five more times. Once when we were putting in our shoes to leave because she didn't want us to go. Um, but it was getting really hairy in there, so and Lorraine decided to call it for the evening because well, for the for the entire investigation because we had to drive all the way back to uh, Connecticut. But um, and then three times on the way home, I was actually driving. I was driving my mom's caravan that I borrowed to fit as many people as possible and the equipment and so forth. But I was overcome as I was driving. Just turned on the interior dome light, and tears were streaming down my face. And then the last time when I was actually writing about it, uh, I wrote a column called Hauntings for the Sacred Heart University newspaper in, uh, while I was working investigating with the Warrens uh, because it was a Catholic university and everybody was very interested in how, you know, what was going on. So um, as I was recollecting what was happening, I was actually I drew her right to me, and I, I explained that through quantum physics and quantum entanglement and a law of attraction as well. But, you know, to the point where, I was thinking about it, and I was writing about it, and I picked up the phone, and I called Lorraine, and I, you know, I said, Lorraine, when are we going, asked her, when are we going back to Vermont? That was really, really interesting. <laughs> and she said, well, we just got back. We're just, I'm, you know, still unpacking and going over all the, uh, you know, the evidence and so forth, and, uh, you know, we have no plans to return. I said, all right, well, have a nice night or afternoon. And 
literally one minute later, I pick up the phone again. I said, Lorraine, I really strongly feel like we need to go back there. And she said, Jason, I just told you, we don't, we don't have permission to return a second time. We don't know how to get a hold of the family because they fled the house. Um, and so there's no plans to go back. And I said, okay, I'm sorry to bother you. Have a nice night. <laughs> a minute later, I called back and said, Lorraine, she's like, Jason, you know, are you writing about this for your column? And I said, yes. So she said, you're drawing her right to you. You know, so she's saying, call her, call her, call her. You know, we need to go back, come, come back, <laughs> and um, things like that. So that's how easily influenced we are by spirit. So people really, um, you know, can learn a lot from that. It's about, you know, sometimes your thoughts aren't even your own when you're dealing with these types of things. So Now, what, most- what, are, what are your thoughts, Jason, on, like, energy transfer? Would that be something like a, a type of energy transfer, would you think? No, I think I made a connection with her because we were in the field. I didn't go into that because I didn't you know, want to go into too much detail. I'm talk, actually writing about it in a, in a book, another book, which is this entire case. But uh, we were in the field where this um, woman, her body was mangled. She was, she was basically going into labor, and she was being moved from the field to the house to the midwife in a horse and carriage or buggy, and... Uh, the wagon flipped over and her body was mangled. But her last conscious thought was get back to the house. So that's where she went. She didn't go, she didn't go through, into the light. She didn't cross over. She went back to the house, you know, intending to deliver her baby. But then she's just in her spirit body, so there's no physical body. There's no physical fetus in her body anymore. So that's the grief right. that she was experiencing. But when we were in the, we were in the field, I was the last one. Um, actually, I was taking – they handed me the camera. We had three guys, Ecto Joe, we called them because he got – great ectoplasm photos all the time just streaming out of him and that what these spirits were using to manifest uh, you know in a, their physical likenesses and so forth but they handed me the camera at one time so i could take a picture of the three of these uh, investigators because when the three of them were together they got phenomenal photographs it was just an interesting um synergy there but i was they were you know a good you know 30 feet away and it said uh you know i'd go to aim the picture and it says check distance and they go, snap the picture, quick. So it was like registering that something was too close, but there was nobody there. So it was registering something. So I snapped picture after picture. But then when we were, so I made a connection with whoever that was. Um, but when we were leaving back uh, toward the house, I was the last one. And something made me turn around. And I just said, I imagined it, or I just knew that she was standing behind me watching. And I said, come back to the house with us, waiting. And to her, she'd be saying, ah, she can see me, right? I, I made a connection with her. And that's, again, quantum physics and string theory. So I had a connection with her since then. So then when we were back at the house and things were really going, uh, you know, haywire, because we were, trying, we were all sitting around this massive Amish farm table. I think probably sat like 16 people. And, you know, that and Lorraine and me and, you know, uh, John Zappas was there and, uh, you know, um, Andy Thompson and Donna and all, all these all major, all the major people that were working with them, um, even before I came on board, and uh, photographers and people with microphones and all this stuff. And we're sitting on this massive table. We all have our arms on the table, so all of our weight's being applied onto it. And Ed, Ed starts to, uh, you know, try to initiate communication. And he said, the first thing he said is, if there, if there are any spirits here, enter Jason, right? <laughs> but that's not funny, you know. I didn't, I didn't give, I didn't give it permission. But it's interesting how that instantly started to happen because then all of a sudden 
you know, Ed was trying to make communication, you know, if there are any spirits here, not once for yes or twice for no or vice versa, and the table started to vibrate and then the shake and then the bounce on the all four legs and then boom, 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 total chaos, right? I'd never experienced that. And one guy's screaming, it's coming, it's coming, you know, and all of a sudden my jaw dropped and that's when the tears just streamed out of my face. So when all that stuff was happening, I might have been a, a little bit alarmed, you know, or bewildered, and that could have made my auric field a little more porous, and she was able to really, you know, uh, connect with me and, you know, really, you know, project her emotions and so forth, or I just was able to really pick them up. So, but as far as um, thought transference, I, I went through that whole explanation just because I think that when we're, when our field becomes weak, and becomes more penetrable than we can be overcome. But there's also something called cohabitation, which is really interesting that I talk about. It's one of the books I recommend in the analysis section of my book is called The Unquiet Dead by Dr. Edith Fiore, who uh, studied human spirit cohabitation. And it's not possession, because otherwise your consciousness would be pushed aside and this possessing entity or this other entity would fully possess the faculties of your body. But this is cohabitation where you're actually being influenced by the spirit of a human being. And in this case, um, the person who, you know, is normally, uh, you know, uses their body would find that their thoughts are not their own in many cases. All of a sudden their friends change or their food choices change or their, you know, what, what they're attracted to and not attracted to change um, and things like that. So it's hard to differentiate between your thoughts and, and this other entity that basically wants to feel alive again, wants to, you know, taste that beer or, or you know, feel that cigarette or, or just, you know, have a, an experience of being alive in a body again. So you're actually buying for control. And then you could have three or you can have even four. So maybe these split personalities aren't really person, aren't really split personalities at all. These are just different personalities altogether vying for control of the same body. And, of course, nobody can see energy unless they're, you know, very sensitive. So everything is, you know, mislabeled and everybody becomes confused and, you know, people get thrown in asylums and things like that or given all kinds of pharmaceutical drugs, God forbid. But um, it's fascinating stuff. So especially when you're dealing with demonic entities and so forth, you have to be absolutely sure that anybody who acts out of character, um, you know, is watched very closely because it might not even be them that's doing it. Um, you know, or acting in a certain way, so forth. Right, right. Um, somebody wanted to know, uh, how do you determine paranormal from parasitosis? Para what? Parasitosis. Para, oh, parasites? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Parasitosis, that's a, a term that I haven't heard, actually. But, um, you know, we are infinite fields of conscious awareness, temporarily animating a physical body, and we're not our body or our name or our career or our strengths or our weaknesses or our illnesses or diseases or our material possessions or any of those things. Those are just aspects of our life experience, and we're surrounded by spirits. The spirits that are around us, you know, are uh, imperceptible to our limited five senses, and unless you're, you have somebody who's sensitive, you know, in meaning... Uh, clairvoyant, clairaudient, clairsentient, um, empathic, or just, you know, the different abilities that allow you to have what they call the sixth sense, which is able to perceive these 
subtle vibrations that are, again, re resonating or vibrating outside of the range of our normal five senses to decode, um, they're not going to even see them or know that they're aware or around us. But cats and dogs can see into this uh, fourth dimension easily, or who knows really where, you know, what the limitations are as far as what they can see. But the number of people that told me stories about their pets in these certain homes up in Salem was just fascinating, too. They can see them. They can sense them. You know, we're really blind as a bat, and we don't even have sonar. But they're, they're all around us all the time, and especially in places like Salem and, and things like that. And uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating to really understand what is around us all the time, both good and bad, because we have spirit guides, we have angelic beings and so forth that are watching over us and, you know, relatives and things. And the little children who all see, they see because their pineal gland is fresh and new. That's, that's what's, you know, been called this, the third eye. It's the grain of rice-sized pine cone-shaped uh, gland in the center of the right and left hemisphere of our brain that really function. They have photoreceptors in there that are actually light-sensitive, too. So that's our sixth sense. That's our third eye. And the children can see, you know, so when they're standing in the corner talking to somebody or asking you a question, Mommy, why is, there, why is that man in my room? Or why is Grandpa still here? And things like that. Or they're talking to their imaginary friends and the, and the, the adults look at them like, they're, you know, they're imagining things. Um, they really need to be taken seriously because they can see very clearly. And the thing that really is, boggles my mind is, you know, we teach, we teach our kids that Santa Claus is real and the Easter Bunny is real and the truth fairy is real, but that ghosts aren't real and that we better grow up and stop, you know, imagining things. And, you know, it's time to, you know, act like an, an adult now, little Billy, you know. Well, you um, know, it's funny you should say that because I just recently moved into a basement apartment and I was upstairs with uh, the people I'm renting from and they have a little three-year-old little boy. And he looked down the stairs and he says, there's somebody downstairs. I just saw a shadow. I'm like, there is nobody downstairs. I'm up here. Sure. Oh, really? I saw a shadow. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I know what that's all about, but I don't need people to be getting frantic and alarmed, you know? The house yeah. was built in 1900. I haven't looked into the real history of it or the street or anything like that. So I will be doing no. that, though. When you you know we're talking about ghosts, we're trying to get back to the the parasitosis question. I think it was, um, but you know we are fields of consciousness, and when the body fails, whether it's due to a, a car accident or dies on a stretcher or organ failure or the roof collapses or whatever reason, the body will fail. Where uh, we vacate the body. We realize we're completely fine. We may be a little disoriented and shocked to say, oh, gosh, my, you know, my physical lifetime's over. over. Look at my body. It's all mangled. Or, wow, I'm still okay. You know, I can see and think and hear and reason. I can see and hear and, I can see and, and uh, hear better than I could when I was in my body. Of course, we don't need glasses or the wheelchair we were in. We don't have the aches and pains and that types of thing that are all associated with the, the body, or I call it the space suit because it's really what it is. Um, space to, to experience third dimension so we realize we're, we're thrust out of the body we're completely fine we're a little shocked or dismayed at the fact that our body is you know crushed <laughs> or you know we've left or we, we're trying to you know see our relatives and you know tell our tell our relatives who are around us that we're okay 
But again, we're vibrating outside of the range of our five senses to decode, except that the Russians have actually filmed using Kirlian photography type cameras, the soul actually vacating the body. So then that apparently is proven. Um, so we leave the body. We'll see the brilliant light that opens up for us. Usually it's through a, a cavern or a hallway or a window or a doorway or it's right there and see our relatives and angelic beings and maybe even people we don't currently know or recognize. Um, and we have the choice, the free will choice to either go through or choose not to. And if we choose not to, then it closes. And we usually think of going home where we felt most comfortable. So in the case of that, the 1500s house that you're in, you know, this guy uh, leaves his body and goes back home to where he lived. Right. Which is really, he's stranded at that point. Lorraine always called that an earthbound spirit because you're really stuck in between dimensions at that point. You're back in familiar settings where you lived in a physical body, but, you know, like the third dimension is done with you. The physical dimension is done with you. Um, there's nothing you can do. You can't interact in the third dimension the same way you see. You can't, you're not perceptible by anybody that's around you unless they're sensitive or very young children with active pineal glands, which get calcified, by the way, and that's why they get shut off. And they get calcified mostly through the ingestion of inorganic calcium, but mostly because of uh, fluoride put into the water supply on purpose, by the way, and put into the toothpaste on purpose, by the way. Um, to keep everybody at a level playing field. They don't want people accessing the higher dimensions and then being, you know, uh, awake and aware. They want everybody on a level playing field be controllable. So they being the people that control the world, who are the banking elite and all that kind of stuff. So we don't even go there. But the, um, so, you know, old man Jones goes back to his old farmhouse and he, you know, surveys the property and he hangs out and he's always sometimes seen in his recliner you know, because that's where he spent the last 20 years of his life, you know, in his free time watching, you know, I Love Lucy or whatever he wanted to watch and drinking his beer and having a good time and, you know, being at peace. So then the next generation comes along and they pass away and most people cross over. Some others decide to go back to where they felt at peace, you know. So you have all these multiple generations of, of people all living in the same house or all, you know, present in the same house. But... To them, there's no time or space outside of the third dimension. So to them, it, it just happened. It's not like they're going to be hanging out. If you, if you pass out of your body and you go back home in the 1700s, it's not like you're going to be there for 300 years, sun up, sun down, um, you know, considering today in 2015. It, to them, it just happened. And yep. because there's no time or space. So you have, then you have multiple generations of people in multiple different um, clothing uh, and things like that because they project themselves as they remember themselves um, in their favorite blouse or their favorite trousers, whatever it is. So that's what you're dealing with. So my purpose is, <laughs> I guess I could skip this whole entire interview and just say if we would all go... And especially after my experience that I had in Vermont, if, if my purpose now is to go to these places and to help as many of these poor trapped spirits or people or conscious fields of conscious awareness understand that they turned away from the light, understand that they left their body, help them remember that they left their body, and then to uh, help them remember seeing the light, remember turning away from the light and processing why they chose to do so, 
and then help them understand that there's nothing to fear and everything to gain by going into the light and that it's more beautiful than they could possibly imagine and then gently, you know, coax them into going or call for their parents or call for the, you know, Archangel Gabriel, who's who I use, whatever, to help all these people cross over and end the whole haunting situation in the first place. How about we all do that instead of charging $50 a head for a, a paranormal team to go into XYZ Asylum or XYZ, you know, hotel or Alcatraz or whatever it is just to get a freaking photograph or a, you know, an EVP just to get right. that, just, just to experience it, just so you can have proof. You know, how about we say, you know, enough asking these people to play a game or to roll a ball or to give us a sign and just help them all cross over and end it in the first place. That's what I think we should do. That's what I do. So, you know, I talk to people and I want to go, you know, check out their hotel or something. And they say, don't cross my spirits. And I said, they're not your spirits. That's soul trafficking. <laughs> These are people, you know. <laughs> I love These are people who need, to, who need to cross over and go home, you know. But, you know, what's very fascinating is, in fact, my, I don't know if my friend Nora is listening now, but uh, at the very first paranormal um, convention, I did. I met a friend of mine now named Nora, Nora Custer, and um, she and I, I decided, let's go and check this place out. It was one of these old manor homes and so forth. So we went in, and there was a woman there with uh, dowsing rods and so forth, and I ended up talking to this spirit of a 15-year-old boy, and I told him, I said, you know, anytime I started talking, the dowsing rods would spin in my direction, like almost like complete, like 90 degrees at some point, you know, sometimes, which was really funny. So I guess he wanted to, he liked what I was having to say, but I was basically talking to him, telling him there's nothing to fear, you know, about going into, into that light and calling and for, you know, you can call out for it at any time. You don't ever need, need to be afraid and you don't ever need to think that you have to stay here for any reason or that anybody else has the right to tell you that you have to stay here. And the, the response we got was basically he has other family members that, or in spirit that are on the property, and he doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to leave them. So the response I had was, well, how about if you go through and reconnect with your highest self and you're be completely rejuvenated, completely restored, and reconnected, and come back and show them how incredibly glorious it all is, and then show them what you're like at that point. Because what's really fascinating is, is when you leave your body and you don't go into the light, you maintain the same personality, whether it was nasty or nice. When you go and you appear as you appear at when you left your body most most times, um, which could be older. When you go through the light and come back, anybody who has any experience with that entity at that point, it's the perfected version of the the it's the ultimate version of the perfection that they that they could ever imagine that their Uncle Bob could be, right? If Uncle Bob was an alcoholic and he was, you know, just a mess physically and emotionally and uh, left his body and ended up lurking around the house. That's the uncle Bob that they would experience. Uncle Bob who goes through the light and comes and is completely restored and comes back is the grandest version of the greatest vision of uncle Bob that they could ever imagine. 20 years old or 30 years old, you know, perfect body, radiant, glowing. And the message is always unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness and everything is more beautiful than you could possibly imagine versus, I want to drink, you know, <laughs> um, or, you know, being grouchy Uncle Bob. So to tell that kid that you can go through 
and then come and show his family what it's what he's you know what what it's really like. Uh, there's a, probably a really good chance that I'll go I'll go with them. But whenever I pass the cemetery, I'll just say thank you, Archangel Gabriel, for coming here now and for taking any spirits into this light, in, any spirits in this cemetery into the light, if if they so choose, you know, so be it. Amen. So that's all we need to do. They don't know that they can call out for it to open again because nobody's ever taught that. So they're stuck. They don't know what to do with themselves. They just roam around. They can be anywhere they want to be in a split second. So you can be in your house one second. You can be on the freaking moon the other second. I think that's how fast you move. You can be, you know, as far as when they have the Enfield voices, Ed Lorraine Warren's major case out in Enfield, England, the uh, one second the spirits were, t- were talking to Ed, the next they were explaining what Lorraine was doing 3,000 miles away. You know, instant transfer. They just go back and forth wherever you want to go because there's no distance. There's no. There's really no time or there's no space and there's no really no distance because everything just simply is. So that's another really fascinating aspect of this whole thing is that you know we're we're trying to use. Oh, so another reason I wrote this book is because when I worked with the Warrens and I learned that um, even but even before I tapped into my empathic skill. I just walked around and observed and felt, you know, I didn't, I think there's one picture of me with an old, uh, flat camera that Andy found. Um, or actually I'm just holding a camera to go use ghost snap pictures here and there, but I never use that. We are our own instruments, especially if we can learn to tap in our own psychic abilities. And, you know, if we devoted any amount of time to developing our psychic abilities, uh, we'd find that, you know, they become more sensitive versus just expecting, oh, I want to be psychic. Well, you know, are you meditating every day? Are you, you know, trying to feel different energy fields around different pieces of fruit? Are you trying to do anything that's, that will allow you to use a sixth sense versus your normal five faculties? Most people don't. And uh, we can all do a better job, you know, meditating more and just trying to reconnect and declare our intentions to be of service. And that's what I think the whole difference is, is, with me is, and it's only about my opinion of me. I don't really, you know, nobody's any, any better than anybody else on this earth. We're all the same. We're all part of the God consciousness, and we're all here experiencing our particular lifetimes. But I've just been blessed to be able to work with Ed and Lorraine Warren personally, and that's another reason I wrote the book, is I said, you know, I, there's so many paranormal groups out there I discovered because I really didn't care. I never, it was never about EVPs or any of that stuff you know, our photographs and things like that, I was out to experience firsthand. And then I discovered, you know, many years later that there's a zillion paranormal groups out there and there's, uh, you know, tons of conventions going on and things. I said, man, I'm going to just reveal the most terrifying case I've ever investigated um, and try to dig up as much stuff as I can, you know, in relation to that um, packed who knows several different places that I moved all the different years um, and bring this to public awareness, but also explain in the analysis section who I am and what, why I'm any, you know, who I am and how I worked with the Warrens who are the pioneers. I say they're the pioneers of the entire modern ghost investigation craze that thrives to this day. And none of us, none of these radio stations would exist if it weren't for them. None of these movies would exist if it weren't for them. The ones that are based on facts, you know, and uh, they've taken a lot of heat over the years for different things and so forth. And 
But I, I tell you, I've worked with them in person, and I can tell you that they're legitimate. And uh, it was just a blessing to be able to say that I worked with them. So that's why another reason I wrote it, I guess. But uh, well, I myself have um, consulted with Lorraine on many, many of my cases. You know, so she has also been like a big part of my life too. Mm-hmm. So, J- Jason, what do you think about when? You walk into a house, you do a walkthrough, and you end up doing a full-blown-out exorcism. Did that ever happen to you? Not physically to you, but did that ever happen um, on any of the cases you walked into? Well, it was the case that I talked about in Dark Siege, but I'm not an exorcist. Let's be clear about that. And, oh, or, no, I'm know, not saying uh, that. I'm just okay. asking. So, so it was... This case, which was, I well, might as well delve into this case that I was gonna, that I wrote about. So it's called Dark Siege: A Connecticut Family's Nightmare. Okay. And it was a nightmare. And the reason, the way I got involved in the case is that basically, oh, uh, I didn't go through the whole timeline here. So after I, I worked with all these cases and I had my empathic connections and so forth, I was, uh, I decided I was going to go and uh, finish my creative writing degree. So I transferred out to Washington State, Eastern Washington University. And as soon as I got out there, Lorraine called me and asked me to investigate a case in Idaho on their behalf because I was much closer and, you know, it would save the family a lot of money um, versus flying the Warrens out there personally. And they, so that was pretty much my case. And that was fascinating. And that was really interesting. Um, and then because of that, I there was such a huge interest on campus and they wanted me to pick up my column there, Contings, for the Easterner newspaper. And then I was the president of my fraternity at the time, and we flew the Warrens out to do their college lecture, and that created this huge buzz. And, and we did several different um, investigations around Spokane proper, Spokane, Washington. So that that was such a, created such a huge buzz and huge interest. That I actually started teaching a class out there, and I kind of mirrored it off the Northeast Society. So I called it the Northwest Society for Paranormal Research, and basically discussed, you know, I taught classes. It was a 26-week class. And um, not in credit, but it was really interesting. And put ads in the paper and started getting inundated with, you know, handwritten letters. This is back before the Internet. <laughs> um, so I got handwritten letters from people about things they're experiencing and, you know, a lot of uh, earthbound spirits being seen in the homes, you know, the, their homes after their, they were, their bodies were buried. at a UFO case, which was really fascinating, and, and different things going on. Not really any demonic stuff going on you know, true demonic were requiring an exorcism like you were talking about over there. But when I returned and after I graduated and I went back home to Connecticut, I put an ad in the paper uh, for Transcendence, which was a uh, seminar I was going to put on at the West. I did put on at the Westport Inn and teaching, talking about everything I had experienced with the Warrens or growing up with the Warrens and then out in Washington and my my spiritual awakenings that I had out there. And the family actually found my ad in the paper and when they uh, had fled for the afternoon because they just too much was going on, it was as the mother and the daughter and mother's friend, um, and that's how I got involved in it. But it was a classic case of they said six different times when they finally got through to me, only after she pleaded for Jesus to help get through, which is when the phone lines cleared, um, and she told me that they tried six times to get a hold of me, and they, all they got was you know, crackling on the other end and growling and, you know, 
static and, and different strange sounds, I knew immediately that something was at work in the house trying to prevent them from communicating with me. And the same thing happened with uh, Yvonne, who was the psychic that became involved in the case um, that the mother's friend found an ad for um, and invited that, you know, tried to contact her so she'd get involved in the case. But that's, this case was absolutely the most rapid escalation from um, infestation to oppression to possession I've ever experienced and that we've, anybody I've worked with has ever experienced. So that's another reason why I wrote about it, because it was just the family did everything right, or everything, everything wrong at precisely the wrong time. So in the chapter analysis section, I explained, you know, what the family did right and wrong, in most cases wrong, um, that made things worse for themselves what other people have done in these situations and then cross-referencing other cases that the Warrens have worked on or that I was involved on working in cases in the, some of the Warrens cases and going through the science and spirituality behind all of this stuff, specifically through quantum physics and the laws of attraction, intention, conscious manifestation, um, and putting it all together, which is, it's kind of like, you know, it's a scientific analysis about why these things happen, why Ouija boards function the way they do, why they should be avoided. And Ed's quotes about, you know, um, 95% of all the cases of demonic uh, infestation, which lead to oppression, of course, and possession, are the result of a, of a Ouija board, the use of a Ouija board, which is exactly what this family used, the teenage boys used. And they didn't admit it to me the first time around until I had said, There's, this is not going to happen in this house unless somebody uses a Ouija board. So they finally, the Tyler finally admitted it. And uh, so that's what we, you know, that's when you, you we were sure that uh, this was something that was just completely, uh, well, we experienced all the activity before they, we ever got the confession of the Ouija board. And we knew that simply just based on the phenomena of the blocked phone calls that something very serious was going on. And, oh, by the way, <laughs> the case what we did in Vermont that I was telling you about where I had my first um, psychic or empathic experience, that morning, we almost didn't even make it to Vermont. I borrowed my mother's caravan, brand-new caravan she bought, um, because I volunteered to drive. And I did something I never normally do. I got in the van the first thing in the morning, and I said, I washed this van in the blood of Jesus Christ and, and everyone so that, so that it is protected and that everyone inside it is protected on our journey. And I've never, I've never done that. So what inspired me to do that? That's a good question. So as I was going up the Merritt Parkway from Westport up toward Monroe, I was in the left lane in the Merritt Parkway. For those of you that don't know, it's a beautiful scenic um, two-lane road, two-lane north, two-lane south, you know, separated by um, grassy um, hills and so forth or barriers. But I was traveling along in the left lane, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this black BMW, passed the car on the right, and then started to uh, shake I'm trying, you know, I'm looking at it, and it's like, look, like it's like vibrating and shaking and then swerving, like fishtailing. And then all of a sudden, it, it goes up and it goes right into my lane at 90 degrees, and I plow right into the guy's driver door. His window gets blasted out, and I got out, of, I was unhurt, and I got out, and I asked him if he's okay, and he said, it's like I hit solid ice. And this was November 10th, and there wasn't any ice that year. The, the year that the uh, Dark Siege case took place, and it was actually early winter. But uh, here, the cops arrived and so forth. This is before cell phones, of course, so I couldn't make any phone calls. 
but the, the police didn't quite uh, didn't understand what could have happened because it was it was not cold enough to generate any ice. But this car, this black BMW, um, you know, was manipulated by demonic entities. The only spirits of the only the only spirits that have the power to do that are demonic entities, and it was also a black car. Black is you know a uh, very low frequency color and so forth. So anyway, by the time I got off the highway. I was on her. The van was still drivable. Of course, um, my mother wasn't very happy. But the um, when I finally got off the highway to call the Warrens, Lorraine almost you know, it was a long pause, and she almost called off the entire trip because she knew how dangerous that is. And if they can, if, if they're trying to prevent us from getting out there by throwing another car into our lane, um, it might be too dangerous to put everybody at risk. But we went up anyway, and nothing further happened. But I truly believe to this day that's because I blessed the car. We all have the power to do that. You know, we all have the ability to do that. We all have the power to call upon divine protection, you know, and declare our intention that this van is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we will be completely protected. The van and its occupants will be completely protected all the way up. So that was just a really, really uh, fascinating element of this whole case. And nothing like that has happened where my Actually, in the Rage and Wrath, in the uh, case I did in Idaho, which I've called Rage and Rathgrim, it is Rathgrim, Idaho, uh, that is another time that my car was completely disabled when we left the house. And I had my friend with me who was uh, investigating with me. Um, not like we had any accident, but the car was completely disabled and uh, had it towed. And the morning they called me and they said the car started right up. So... That was interesting. So I might be rambling. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. Well, I mean, when we took on this case, actually, um, it was handed down to me, and I got in contact with Scott about it. It was uh, in New York, and um, we had just gone down there to basically do a walkthrough, you know, and the client, she was sitting outside and her husband called me around the building. I was outside taking pictures because when I went in the house, I felt absolutely nothing. And uh, this woman was in a trance and she looked at me and I'm like, hello, hello. And all of a sudden you hear, get out. And I'm like, no, you get out. You don't belong here. Then I asked if it could tell us, their name and it's definitely told us no it was not giving up its name whatsoever you know mm-hmm. i mean so we had to do something right then and there we couldn't just leave her like that you know mm-hmm. what'd you do huh what did you do we had to do an exorcism on her Yeah. Right then and there, I mean, huh? Who did an exorcism on her? Both Scott and myself. Are you exorcists? Scott has been, well, Scott, do you want to tell him? Yeah, I, um... That really extraordinarily dangerous. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It definitely is. But I'm sanctioned through the ascendants of God to do deliverance and exorcism. I've been doing it for over 20 years. And uh, basically what happened was um, went in there not knowing what actually was happening there. And we basically went there, did a walkthrough, like Judy said, nothing actually happened uh, during the walkthrough, and then sat down to talk to the clients. 
And that's when all basically hell broke loose at that point. But you come to a point in time where what do you do if you're, you're just going through a walkthrough and something like this happens? You don't have any clergy because you're just going to go through a walkthrough. So what do you do? You know, you say, hold on one minute. I have to get clergy. No, you, you deal with it right then and there. That's why I've always been taught to deal with it. Um, you know, because there's more damage can be done is if you don't deal with it right then and there. But it was a long one, and especially since she lunged at me twice, she locked the door on us, or the entity locked the door on us um, once and twice. And I knocked on the door when when uh, we had the door closed at one point, and it, the whole basic side of the house shook. That's how, how um, weak the door was in the framing. When she locked, shut the door, slammed the door, and locked it, I said, oh, no, still my guys were inside, and I actually kicked the door, 75 pounds, I kicked the door, and it didn't even move. Yeah, very interesting. It's not like we go out and do exorcisms every day, okay, but there comes a time when um, you're presented with a situation, you either um, deal with it right then and there, or... Um, something major is going to happen. So. Hmm. Very interesting. I had even uh, sent you a message, Jason, about this case to see if you had any ideas on what we should do or if you wanted to go and help us out and stuff like that, you know? Oh, that was, was back, that was back in September. Oh, this September? Yep. Oh. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Hmm. Well, stuff, you know, stuff, people wonder why so many things are happening and why they're escalating, and it's because of the, the rapid increase in the use of Ouija boards, the repackaging of the Ouija board, and a, you know, the spirit board, and the Barbie board, and this, the, the, uh, supernatural board and everything and everybody believes it's a game and then movies like the Ouija board come out Ouija and then people think it's a game and more and more things happen and now the Vatican's actually tra uh, training more and more exorcists but what's so fascinating is so many people so many uh, clergy members and so forth don't even want to get involved when people are claiming to have horrific experiencing experiences happening in their own homes and that's the real tragedy is to have, you know, these people that are supposed to be there and, you know, coming right to your aid who, one, don't even want to get involved for their own safety or because you know, they don't even believe it. <laughs> and that's, that's fascinating to me. So, you know, more and more is going to start happening. And then, you know, people aren't going to understand quite what's going on or how to deal with it and make things worse. And there, there are paranormal groups to go out there and actually use Ouija boards in people's homes. And I just, oh, yeah, definitely. I, I talked to John about it at the first, when I bumped into uh, John uh, Zappis, um, Good Shop Paranormal, I think it was back in 2013. But I said, what do you think of the rapid increase in the use of Ouija boards? And he said, it's epidemic, you know? And I just said, it's just absolutely ridiculous, that, you know, the, the, the things that are going to ha start happening. But here's another point is, you know, 
the chances are that nothing really awful is going to happen because you're not going to make the right connection to the right place, the wrong place at the wrong time. But what happens if you move out and the next family moves in and all kinds of horror stories start happening there and they can genuinely say, well, we never used a Ouija board because they didn't. But the, the, the vortex or the doorway has been opened previously by the previous owners. So that's something that I always find very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And how do you how do you deal with with uh, with a family who's never used it before? Now, it may not even be a Ouija board. It may be a, a situation where where you have teenage kids, which I do. Okay, and you don't know what their friends' families are into. They could be into double worshiping, or they could be every Friday night using a Ouija board. So you don't know what they're bringing into your house not knowing or innocently or or not innocently bringing it to your house. So sure. there's a lot of variables on, on a lot of them. What was that? I'm sorry, I missed that. Or sending after you. Oh, yeah, you definitely. Know? I mean, how, how can, how can um, you know, and then a lot of these, like my kids' friends will say, oh, come and let's get our house because it's real. We got something going on in the house. And they know that we're a family of investigators. So, I mean, and they know, I'll sit down and ask them a bunch of questions on what's happening at the house. I'll actually talk to the parents. And the parents will either say, absolutely nothing, or yes, we need you to come investigate. Um, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with some, not a lot of it, some of it has to do with Ouija boards, but a lot of it has to do with uh, kids bringing into stuff into the house. Like, you don't know, it happened to my uncle years ago. Um, he was hanging out with a bunch of kids, brand new, in Westport, and he got busted for drugs, and he never did drugs in his life because they brought the drugs into my grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. So he he was busted for doing that. So, um, so you don't know who, who you're hanging around with, basically, because you don't know their whole life, you know? Um, and that's that's the the most difficult part of this whole thing is to try and figure out if it was the Ouija board or if it was something else, you know, um, you know, and it could be twenty years prior that someone used a Ouija board, and just from somebody bringing stuff into that house twenty years later, it, it reactivated whatever was there, you know. Right. Yeah. I come across that a lot too. Yeah. You know. I agree. Um, so what was your like uh, uh, I'm trying to think See, I, I've, I've had a cold so I really can't think but um, um, when you how do you get rid of a Ouija board when, when you do it if you ever have a Ouija board case I follow Lorraine Warren's instruction, which is burying them in the ground with enough room to surround them with a ring of salt. And everything I do, as I say, I thank in advance because whatever you ask for in faith, you shall receive, right? So that comes into asking for your own protection or for help and so forth. But I'll say thank thank you, Archangel Michael, for taking out your sword and for cutting away any connections I have with this Ouija board or any connections, you know. It has to be the people that used it, though. They Everybody has free will. and You can't uh, demand or, 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 you know, request things for them 
because they have their own contracts, they have their own life experience and so forth, and they're, you know, they're the ones that need to do it. The same thing comes when you're trying to help them, uh, you know, get rid of attachments and get rid of uh, energy siphons and things like that and spirits that are around them. They have to ask for it unless the archangels just take it into their hands and go with it. But I'll just say thank you, Archangel Michael, for cutting away any connections that I have with this Ouija board, for closing any doorways that I've opened with it, intentionally or unintentionally, for taking out of my life forever, for transmuting all of this negative energy into love, so be it, and cover it with dirt, and that's it, and, and put it out of your mind. And the, the, the stories I've heard in Salem from people about trying to dispose of their Ouija boards, you know, I, I had the great Ouija board debate uh, with uh, Robert Murch, who's the Bills himself as the chairman of the board. He's a big proponent of Ouija boards, and you know we've had very civil discussions about it. But it was on Andrea, uh, Andrea Perrin's show and George Lopez's show um, last year, and I was explaining why Ouija boards are so bad, and he was explaining why they're harmless. Um, but uh, after I heard all these these horror stories in Salem, which I'll get into in a minute, I contacted him. And I said, "So what do you say about all these boards that are impossible to destroy that keep?" Uh, in essence, teleporting back into the homes where they were used after they were thrown in the garbage or, you know, completely just, you know, disposed of. And he said, I've heard many stories like that as well, and I think they're legitimate. So I said, well, then how can you tell me that the boards are useless or, you know, harmless? So the one, the most astounding one was this uh, um, daughter and father who bought a round Ouija board in a cult store, at an occult store somewhere and used it in their apartment before they left. They packed up their apartment and they moved. Either way, during their move, the entire back of the pickup truck burst into flame. All the contents of their apartment were completely destroyed. The only thing that survived was the Ouija board, and the only mark on the Ouija board was a black burn mark on the word hello. <laughs> you yeah. know, if that doesn't, you know, tell you to just not use them, I don't know what else will, but so many stories like that. And the same thing happened in, in, the, in the case of Dark Siege. I mean, they tried to dispose of it. They watched the garbage truck take it away, and there it reappears, you know, inside one of their lock, lockers in, in uh, high school. Or it disappears from the garbage can and reappears inside one of the other teen's book bags so that he has it in his book bag when he gets home and then accuses the other teen of putting it in there trying to turn his house into a, a, quote, freak house, too. And in essence, these entities trying to turn the teens against each other and to hope that the teen who had it teleported into his book bag would use it there to open a doorway there so they can have access there. But he was smart enough not to use it. And when he decided he wasn't going to use it, guess where it teleported back to? Back in the garbage can in the McLaughlin house where this case took place. So it's fascinating. Uh, so much yes, fun. Why, do you, why do you think that Ouija boards, when, uh, for instance, okay, let's say I had a Ouija board and I was told to burn it and put it, put the ashes spread it into water. Let's say that was the case, which isn't the case, but it's just a scenario. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why is it when I leave the ashes burning outside, okay, and I let it be there all night till it cools down, and then I come back into my house, get ready to go to work in the morning, go out the front door, and the Ouija board is sitting on the front porch, not even burnt. Yeah. Why do you think that is? 
I don't have an answer for that. I'm just wondering if you, the, you know. Well, Ed, Ed said that it's, well, he explained it, and I uh, explained it thusly, that it's, everything is balanced. Everything is duality, light and dark, you know, good and evil, black and white. And Ed always explained that the tarot cards and, um, you know, pendulums and things like that are not as dangerous or there are way there are divination tools that are accessible and have been accessible throughout time, and the Ouija board is the devil's side of the coin. It's like you know there has to be a balance. So if, they, if, if people can divine or use divin you know divine um, dividing tools to look behind the curtain, so to speak, then the Ouija board has to be provided for the balance, for the devil to be able to get his due. He, he explained it that way, and I don't know, he just explained it that way, and I don't know why, but he's convinced that nothing good will ever come through a Ouija board. And if you look at Parker Brothers' logo on their box, it's a freaking spinning black vortex. It's a spiral. It's a yeah. black vortex. They knew exactly what they were yeah. doing. They were made in Salem, by the way. But it's uh, it's a, it's, it's just fascinating. And if people understood that these things will happen once you try to use them, because they don't want you to stop, you know, it would really help people understand that these are these things should not be used. And the fact that they're sold by all these freaking toy stores, and that's you know, a, a, we had the, the boys in this in the case. Dark Sea Genetic Family's Nightmare actually had a divine intervention in the toy store as they were holding the box, the game, you know, the box, um, deciding whether or not to buy it, you know. And um, I won't spoil that, but for people who are interested in reading the book. But anyway, my books, Dark Sea Genetic Family's Nightmare and Dark Siege 2, The Nightmare Returns, which takes place two months after we'd resolved it in the first place. Um, are both available on Amazon.com, of course, and I sell them on my uh, website, darksiege.com. Um, but uh, altogether, it's close to 800 pages worth of reading, and it's uh, written in a true crime novel, Stephen King-esque horror novel format, like you're reading a work of fiction, but it's an actual real case, and I wrote myself in as myself when I arrived midway through to help the family. But it's not about me. It's about this family's ordeal and all the things that they did and didn't do um, that other people should really understand better if they want to really understand the paranormal. Um, they're both endorsed by Bishop James Long as required reading for his demonology class. That's really nice. And, um, you know, I have the, the audio book coming out. I have the graphic novel coming out, which is I'm working with a comic artist to do that. So that's exciting. You know, I'm waiting for the right opportunity for a movie, but if we're talking about movies, all of the cases, because I know all of these principles personally, I know Carmen Snedeker or, or Carmen Reed, as she goes by now, because she's remarried, who was the mother in the house that happened in uh, the case that happened in the um, funeral home in Southington that became a, ha uh, a haunting in Connecticut. I know Andrea Perrin and her father, Roger, who are the principals in The Conjuring. And I know Christopher Lutz, who's the youngest son in the Lutz family, and all three of those cases that were made into books and movies were completely Hollywoodized, and the stuff that happened really didn't even make it into the movie, and the stuff that was in the movie mostly didn't happen. So how about 
we actually tell the truth about what's going on in these cases and not Hollywoodize them. So I'm waiting for the right opportunity for the right director, you know, who has some integrity. And if I had to do it myself, I'll do it myself because I've self-published my books. I've done it. You know, I've been very successful with them. And I write very visually. I have a bachelor's in English creative writing, so I write very, uh, it's a cinematic writing style. So I, I can be and see the way I would want the scene to unfold. So if I have to be my own film director and just do a uh, fundraising campaign to try to get this film made, then I'll do that my way. But it seems that Hollywood has a formula and they just screw everything up. Now, I have a caller that... on the phone um, that they would like to ask you some questions, Jason, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. First. East Virginia, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Carol, you had questions for um, Jason? I have, uh, Yeah, I was just curious on your um, how you distinguish between a true infestation and a, ma- and a manifestation of one's inner id and what your thoughts are on infestation versus poltergeist. Well, from what I understand about poltergeist activity, it occurs when you have somebody of a high energy output, usually somebody just entering puberty. Um, I'm sorry, let me back up. As somebody who's highly emotional, and again, energy in motion, right? And somebody who's just entering, entering puberty is usually the trigger because they have all this cast off energy. They don't, you know, these kids don't know, have enough energy. They have so much energy, they don't know what to do with it. And they actually collide, and that's where you'll have these, you know, issues like broken plates and things like that are all kind of just sudden activity. But, you know, we have elemental spirits. We have um, true demonic spirits. We have human spirits who are basically, you know, us minus the body. But we differentiate. Everything that I do, in fact, I just met Lorraine uh, last winter when I gave her the copy of Dark Siege 2 and told her all about it and everything. She said, she said you listen, honey, you listened. <laughs> And it's true because I follow the Warren's protocol to this day as far as doing the initial investigation about, you know, uh, interviewing the family separately and then individually, but, and then getting the uh, evidence uh, or the testimony of what it is that they're experiencing and then try to experience it myself. I think using a third dimensional gadget to you to try and record fourth dimensional or higher uh, spirit activity is just silly. As far as I'm concerned, you may get lucky, but and how do you really know what you're really getting? It's you know all these radio stations, you know, cycling and things like that. I just think it's silly. I think we're our own instruments. But as far as understanding the actual activity that's go that goes on, I know how to identify inhuman, diabolical, demonic activity because. Do you want to get into exactly what that is? I'm sorry. Would you like to go into exactly what's going to go further as far as exactly what that is and how I would differentiate it? Well, I'm, I was just curious. I'm a scientist, so I'm just curious okay. on what your views are versus, you know, our views. And I find it extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just curious on, you know, when you walked into one of your cases, on how you would distinguish between, say, um, a poltergeist versus an, an infestation is all well, I infest- wanted to... Okay, okay, thank you. Infestation is the first stage of demonic entry into a home. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a flea infests the dog. It doesn't belong there. It's there. 
it's making its presence known um, through oppression, which is the second stage, which is actually going after family members trying to sow distrust and trying to actually, you know, cause chaos in there and break up the family unit, and most importantly, to siphon off as much negative fear energy as possible. So it's all vibration. Love is the highest frequency. Fear is the lowest frequency. And all these entities want to do, if it's a demonic spirit, is to terrorize you, to siphon off all that low-frequency energy that they can use as a fuel source while weakening you at the same time. And I liken that to the law of attraction, right? If you have, a, a, if you have one polarity, which is love, which is the highest frequency, you're going to attract more love to you. You're going to repel negative energies, negative entities, by and large. And the same is true. If you're very negative, you'll attract negative energies, misfortune. You'll repel anything good from coming into your life just through the law of attraction. But so you go into a house, and the most telltale signs are just the feeling of dread, where you know something is off. And it's not a haunt. When you drive by a haunted house, it's not the house that's giving you the, the heebie-jeebies. It's the presence of, a, of an entity or a field of consciousness that is an extra low frequency. So it's completely incompatible with you, especially if you're a loving, kind, compassionate person that is absolutely repelling you and you're, you're, you feel totally on edge and you feel, you feel totally alarmed. If you're sitting there and you're not full of fear and you're watching a, a, a cup move off of the bar and shatter, you know, that's interesting, right? It's not something that's filling you with terror and dread. So, but you'll have things like, you know, awful smells, anything that will repel the normal human being terrible smells like skunks or excrement or urine or feces, terrible sounds, usually all very low frequency booming and banging noises and things like that and growls and scratching like chalkboard scratching. Um, and, uh, you know, the smells and the sounds are the most obvious. But how are you really uh, perceiving these things, right? It's not that there's a, an actual... Uh, dead, rotting carcass laying in the house that's emitting these, you know, causing these fumes to be emitted that are you're picking up through your through your nasal canal. It's projected right into your mind. And Ed always said, all hauntings begin in the mind because you're, you have your your third eye and your your psychic senses and so forth. So when you're sitting alone in your house and you hear creaking floorboards above you and you know no one's in the house. There's not any physical weight being applied to the floorboard above you that's causing it to creak. All this entity is doing is sending the, what, what it knows to be the sounds of creaking floorboards into your, directly into your mind to frighten you. And that starts the whole process of, sight of, of you know, emitting all this fear energy. And I call it the fear buffet because they're trying to do anything they can to cause you to be as afraid as possible, which weakens your auric field and makes you more vulnerable. And they always try to turn everybody against each other as well. But if you start experiencing these things that have no logical um, source, again, the smells and the sounds and the feelings, then you know that something completely is out of the ordinary. Because in all human spirit, you or I, who've left our body and are present in, in the kitchen, you know, we can't really affect anything more than about two pounds worth of weight. And we certainly can't cause absolutely revolting smells to, to take place. It's, you know, based on the experience that I've had working with the Warrens. And Ed being, of course, one of only seven demonologists in all of North America before he passed, and the only non-ordained one. That's where I learned all my, my um, 
information about demonology and about what the spirits can and can't do. Yeah, so, Lorraine's, uh, Lorraine's a very good friend of mine. Bless her heart. I remember when Ed passed. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, I was uh, absolutely. Thanks. And again, it's just my perspective. Like I'm no, I'm no better than anybody else, and nobody's any better than anybody else. It's based on the the experience of working with the Warrens and my own experiences and my understandings. And I think a lot of the understandings come from just you know, uh, just knowing or believing what I believe, and that's it's worked for me so far. Well, I believe that, you know, I absolutely believe that in the, in both the fields, both science and the paranormal, sure. that indeed, if we all would open our minds a little more, I believe that we would get a lot further than the paranormal field is because at this point in time, it's actually stifled. And it's actually sad to see that considering that science is just now breaching the point of parapsychosis within the human mind itself and the hypothesis of the parapsychosis playing into the roles of a haunting. Hmm. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. That's, that sounds fascinating to look into. I know that there was a recent um, United Nations meeting where a, a neuroscientist basically, the whole headline was neuroscientist presents proof of the afterlife to the United Nations um, which was quite fascinating. And I know that the Russians have filmed the vacating soul. Um, Absolutely. The energy, the energy transfer of the human body when it passes. Absolutely. Um, the Russians have concrete proven what the energy transfer has weighed with each individual that passes away. And it's always right. the same, whether it be an infant or whether it be an adult. The amount is always the same. Excellent. Yep. So absolutely, but um, I really appreciate you taking your time to go over because I really don't, I don't, you know, do the whole exorcism. Uh, I'm a scientist, so, you know. Right, right, right. And so it's actually really fascinating to see the way that you guys perceive this. So I appreciate you taking your time and um, answering my question. Thank you. Of course. So what was most interesting is that I, what I try to tell people as well is if you understand if you have an understanding that these things exist right if you can believe that we are infinite fields of consciousness that are that are immortal we cannot be destroyed okay that's one major well, it's step in fact it's scientifically proven that the human body is energy and it's scientifically proven that energy cannot be it cannot be destroyed it cannot be it's scientifically proven Right, okay. So at so that point in time, when the energy of the human body, which we know exists through science, is, you know, decimated, where does it go? It has to go somewhere. What do you think about, it's completely off subject, but and you're a scientist, so main, so many people, are, so many mainstream scientists or, you know, cutting-edge scientists, I guess I should say, I should say, are now basically saying that this entire universe is nothing but a gigantic holographic computer simulation. What do you say about that? I think it's bullshit, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> okay. So anyway, back to... But you uh, have to understand, much like... I mean, and I do, I have been in the field of the paranormal for a very long time. 
Um, I take it. I took a hiatus because I just graduated and got my death investigation license with my basic forensic pathology. But I believe that the field of science is much like the field of the paranormal. I mean, there are no experts in either one of them because it's such a vast, a vast world that none of us have all the answers. I mean, and until the end of our time, there will never ever be all the answers for anyone to say that one person is wrong or right within either field is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. Well, we could like, like I said, if you know, if we can't even perceive what cats and dogs can perceive, then, you know, how advanced are we? And what are we really capable of understanding if we are only, we can only see 0.0025% of the entire spectrum, you know, with our eyes. So we're blind as a bat. We don't even have sonar. So it's like, it's like I, I liken it to we have a deep-sea diving bell hat helmet on with just the, the one small window with a cage in the front. <laughs> we can't see anything around us or above us or below us. That's how blind we are in a sea of darkness. So we're trying to uh, describe the universe through what we can understand based in our human faculties, though. What's fascinating, Absolutely. though, is I talk about yeah, when we leave our bodies, we're – we're able to see incredible colors and hear completely perfectly in, in, in a much grander and greater way than we can in the physical body. And that's been brought forward through Dr. Raymond Moody's work, Life After Life, with all of those near-death experience um, cases. But anyway, back to the um, being a, a – not calling you a non-believer. I'm just saying that the father in this case was the last one to believe in ghosts. And – if you have an understanding that through your research or through reading that, or at least you have a uh, grasp that these things can exist, right? Demonic spirits can exist. And the activity that they uh, manifest is consistent. And you can say, okay, I can deal with this. I know, I understand this is happening. I understand this is possible. Wow. This is happening to me. Um, oh God. Right. Well, if you have a guy who is completely ignorant of it and has no uh, understanding and then is completely and suddenly and brutally and violently assaulted by these entities, uh, that's enough to cause people to snap. Because it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing and to have it happen and say, wow, I'm experiencing this and this is called fantasia or, or, uh, you know, whatever you're going to be experiencing or, you know, sleep paralysis, which is another form of demonic attack where they prevent you from moving. So to be affected by something that you don't believe in, especially when it's invisible, especially when it wants to destroy you and that's its, its objective and its intention is to destroy your family and destroy your house. It's enough to cause people to completely lose their minds and end up, you know, in a mental asylum. So I think it's really important for people to understand that based upon the evidence that, of all of these cases and of all these experts, well, you know, like the term expert, I guess, um, experiencers, I guess you would just call it, um, that these things could become a general understanding. It'll be much less devastating should these things ever happen to you or to anybody. Absolutely. Well, we, okay, now don't get me wrong. We do believe in what the paranormal field calls spirits, ghosts, um, we even believe in what, you know, is called demonic, but we actually 
don't classify it as that. We classify it as energy transfer um, versus good energy and bad energy. Mm-hmm. So we do, we just classify it differently. Now, do we have a hard time with some of the, you know, the dingo ate my baby type stuff? Yeah, we do. Because for us, we need to have that evidence in front of us. I guess we walk, and that's the problem, I think, within the field of science, is that we walk by documents. Um, We don't walk by faith at all. And unfortunately, a lot of times when you do that, you close your minds off to a lot of, you know, realms around you. Stephen Hawkins himself has proven there are seven different realms. Now, as his theory goes, you know, do scientists on both sides agree and disagree? Absolutely. And I believe that it's in both of the fields, I believe that a lot of people close their minds off to certain things and because they do that they're actually they're they're depriving themselves of knowledge sure and that's why for anybody to turn around and say well i don't believe in this so i'm not going to you know is actually just idiotic you know because how are you ever going to prove or disprove anything if you don't take the chance and at least attempt to figure it out. Well, that's like cognitive dissonance. It's something so far beyond your realm of, of belief that you won't even look at it. Um, that drives me out of my mind. I, I present so much stuff, so I investigate so many different things, not just the paranormal. And I post things, especially on Facebook, of course, which is completely controlled anyway. But, you know, for people that don't even take the time to even look at it, look at something, you know, or, or they find something to be so preposterous or outlandish that and outside of their realm of, of belief that they won't even look at it despite the overwhelming evidence to prove that it's true, that drives me out of my freaking mind. <laughs> you know, like there's a point where you just can't reach certain people. It's like, you know, if you ask the certain questions and they don't quite get it and they don't want to know more, you know, then you're just really talking to the wrong people and just I've learned to just move on. And despite making, you know, it, sensitive subjects, you know, things like or things that are exposed, if you'll permit me to use that term, um, and people won't even look at it. What it affects certainly will affect your family and your lifestyle and, your, you know, the, the people of the, that are all around you. That drives me nuts. But the whole reason I got into this is because I wanted to unlock the secrets of the universe. I wanted to know, you know, and to work with and experience what happens when we leave our bodies and can we interact with these spirits, you know? And I remember my sister-in-law, God, I think I was 18 and I, yeah, I was 18, 18 and a half, 19. I was starting to, I was with the Warrens and and my sister-in-law said, Oh, it's Friday night. She asked what I was doing. I said, Oh, I'm going on a, uh, investigating a house where there's all kinds of things going on. She said, that's not normal. (laughs) You should be going on a date, you know? It's like, well, I'd rather unlock the secrets of the universe, so I'm sorry you don't think that's normal, but, you know, to me, I think it's quite normal to try to understand things better. Anyway. Well, actually, in the grand scheme of things, normal doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> well, good and bad actually, isn't it is, it is, it, Scientists don't believe normal exists, because what is normal truly anyway? Right. There is right. nothing classifying what normal, the word normal actually is meant to be. Therefore, it can't be proof that normal exists. 
and all science today is anyway is the current understanding of the way things are. We all know that those things change. So well, it, exactly, and it's constantly changing. Anything, anything is a hypothesis. An educated guess, at best, until it's documented and proven by data. Yeah. But I really do appreciate you taking your time with me. Um, like I said, I don't do, you know, I don't do the whole demonic cases. I mean, I do, you know, I do other types of things. But so for me, it's actually very interesting to see somebody that actually does do the cases mm-hmm. and their take on the situation. So I appreciate you taking your time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you listening or taking your time out of your day to you know, check it out. You know, I much prefer to help people cross over and to help, you know, help grieving families understand that, you know, their loved ones is, are fine and that type of thing. But, you know, when duty calls, <laughs> you have to get involved and deal with types of things. So we have, we have different ways on helping the family understand, but that's okay. Okay. Well, well thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling in, Carol. Thank you, Carol. All righty. Um, so, Jason, I would have liked to hear about your second book before we run out of time here. Oh, yeah. Are we out at 8.30? <laughs> Four minutes? No, we could end then if you if you need to end. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know what the time frame was. Okay, so basically... Dark Siege of Connecticut Family's Nightmare is a case that happened in 1993 and involved a six-year-old girl and her mother who were driving by Union Cemetery, which is one of the most haunted cemeteries in New England. But they had no interest in ghosts. They had no – this is back before all the TV shows and all these – you know, all the the craze that's going on. So they had no interest in ghosts. It was just a very dark, stormy afternoon right before Halloween. And – the little girl saw an apparition walking toward their car and scared her out of her mind. And the mother didn't believe her, of course, until she experienced it the next morning in the kitchen. And then the 16-year-old brother and his two best friends experienced this same specter in the house when they got off of the school bus and witnessed certain activity going on. So they decided they would go to the mall and buy a Ouija board, and all hell literally broke loose that evening. And again, it was the most rapid uh, escalation from infestation where they actually were gained entry into the house to actually going after the family members first individually and then collectively um, leading to possession of one of the family members and involving exorcism that I've ever experienced. And uh, what makes it completely unique is it's written in a very cinematic writing style, uh, Stephen King-esque uh, horror novel format. So it's like you're reading a fiction book, but it's a real case from start to finish when they first were passing by the cemetery up into the point where I actually arrived and I wrote myself in as myself um, and the other people that were involved as well. And then the chapter analysis section, which is something completely unique, which I'm really pleased that I decided to include because at first I thought I was going to just include it as a, uh, a separate booklet. And I'm really happy I put it in there for many reasons, which I'll go over in a second. But anyway, that explains my beliefs growing up and who I am as the author and the investigator, so people have an understanding about who I am and why I'm presenting this material the way I am. But how I've worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren, the whole synchronicity led me to meet them, which was completely profound. 
and then the first several cases I've worked on with them in detail, which are really interesting. And but then getting into the science and spirituality, according to my understanding, <laughs> about why these things happen and why they're possible and how to protect yourself properly and how it's all about vibration and why Ouija boards are so dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. How to pray for the protection of the archangels properly. Um, and uh, what to do and what absolutely not to do in these types of situations. So volume two, or Dark Siege 2, is called The Nightmare Returns because everything came back with a vengeance two months later. We told the family, don't think about it. It's done with. It's over. It's done out of your life. Turn the page and don't give it any recognition, and you'll be completely fine. But uh, they started to talk about it. They started to worry about what if it's going to come back and ruin our holiday. And the psychic, Yvonne, had an absolutely terrifying uh, vision in her kitchen from the, one of these demonic entities, which actually appeared to her as an owl-headed, bear-bodied, like a brown bear-bodied, uh, talon-footed, tentacle-fingered, nine-foot-tall behemoth, again, in her psychic vision, um, and showed her exactly what it's going to do to everybody who in any way tried to thwart them and stand uh, against them, and uh, they went after the bishop first, they went after the demonologist second, they went after the family, friends, and it was just it's a horrific case of demonic retribution, um, incubus and succubus attacks, which are sexual demonic attacks on, on two of the people, uh, animals attacked in vicious ways, and uh, it just, we figured out why they were able to come back and put a stop to it. Now nothing more has happened, and nothing's happened in the last 20 years, so that's why I finally felt, you know, confident that they were going to be safe. I could write about it. I changed a lot, you know, in there as far as the names and the personalities and things like that. But the experiences that they had, both individually and collectively, are actually are totally inaccurate. Um, and again, I include the analysis section, but I go into the analysis section in um, exactly the same way, but I talk about more detailed, uh, the first demonic case that Ed took me on in great detail, why I believe having a museum full of artifacts is a completely ridiculous idea and is very dangerous. And um, that is the conclusion of this one family's ordeal. I couldn't release an 800-page book right out of the chute, so I, I separated it into two different volumes but I'm actually considering merging them both and including a floor plan and some, you know, photos that I can release that won't divulge who the people really were. And uh, especially photos of the actual uh, manifested uh, activity that was going on and uh, combine it into one volume. But um, that's in the works. So, but both books um, are available for only $14.99 each and it's 467 pages and 385 pages and it's at my website darksiege.com D-A-R-K-S-I-E-G-E.com and the Kindle books are also available uh, free for Amazon Prime members and also for a very inexpensive download and um, I would really appreciate your support in that but I know you'll absolutely find them uh, astounding. I have 150 reviews, 151 reviews for volume one now, almost a complete five-star rating across the board. And volume two, it's got an 88% five-star rating, which is really good, even better than the first volume. 
The second volume is actually twice as intense and it is really age specific to 18 and up because it's actual really horrific things that happen to them. But so I have two other books coming out uh, that I'm halfway done with. Each one is called Our Journey Home, Guiding Spirits into the Light, which is full of all the beautiful stories about helping spirits cross and help families deal with uh, lingering loved ones. And I'm um, I'll mostly started beginning uh, the cases that I investigated in Washington State. And then the fourth book is called Rage in Rathrum, which is the case I investigated for Lorraine back in uh, Rathrum, Idaho. And I have... Uh, a smaller handbook for the transition that I'm going to be getting out. And uh, then I start, I'm going to go ahead and start um, doing a, um, the Vermont case in detail. I'm, getting, I'm going to um, work on that with uh, several of the other people that are actually were involved in getting all of their testimony, too, so it's going to be something different. And it's never-ending, so I'll just continue writing about all the amazing cases that I was involved in. At the same time, um, oh, I actually have my mother's... Uh, really, really cute children's novel picture book that's going to be released any day now called Snow Angel, which uh, you can Amazon that or Google that. That's going to be up in just another couple of days, if not even by tomorrow, which is really cute about how, how snow angels are really made. The angels watch over us and they get so tired that they fall back in the snow and they take a rest and uh, the imprint is there for people to see and that's how the first snow angels is. It's really cute. We had it illustrated in a all kinds of fun, exciting things going on. Well, that sounds, you know, really interesting. Like I said, Jason, I have to get the second book because I read the first book and I loved it. So, thanks. I will definitely have to get the second book someday yeah. soon. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's really, you know, it's really fun. Is while I was in Salem, which I really didn't go to much Salem story, but the uh, I had a woman who came up and she said, "I just shelved your book in the Albany Public Library." She was the actual assistant librarian lady who actually received the book, you know, from the from Ingram and put it on the shelf. And I had another right. woman from Amazon fulfillment in their warehouse, which is three times the size of a football field. And she says, "I just replenished your bin." I was like, what are the synchronicities there? You know, I was like, send me a picture of it. I want to see what it looks like. What's my bin look like, you know, <laughs> in this huge facility? So that's really fun. But anyway. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like, you know, you're doing really well and stuff with uh, your writing. I left your writing. That's what I went to college for. Yeah, I don't know how you have any time to go out on any investigations anymore, doing all your yeah. writing and all, all your right. events and stuff. Um, do you have any upcoming events now? I do not have anything scheduled. Actually, same as last year when I got off of, uh, when I left Salem, it's a 33 days or 14 hours every day, and it's just really, really depleting energy-wise. So I'm really just, uh, like I said, I'm getting my mom's book up, as probably hopefully by tomorrow, and, um, you know, trying to get this Our Journey Home finished by Christmas time. That's gonna, really going to be tight. Um, but uh, that's what I'm working on now. I don't have any, as far as shows, I have nothing scheduled yet for the end of the rest of the year. But um, I might, like I said, as you know, we're trying to do some library type of, you know, uh, seminars type of things, just meet and greets and questions and answers and lecture and things like that, and hopefully book signing. Right. Well, like I said, um, I was going to um, get a hold of the people in Meriden and see if I can't get you into that library here. Yeah, great. You know. 
So yeah, I appreciate that. I could even, I, I don't think I could be there. Well, Merritt and I could be there for you, but I, I, you know, I could set stuff up probably in Newington and Weathersfield and Berlin and stuff like that for you, but I wouldn't be able to make it there. <laughs> Why not? Oh, I don't not. drive. <laughs> oh, you don't drive? Okay. No. Well, well no, when we learn how to teleport, if we learn how to teleport, we drive. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. You have to buy me a new broom then. Yeah, okay, I will. Nice. <laughs> All righty, Jason. I, I'm glad that you know you came to the show tonight, and it's been a while since I had John, and I really enjoyed having you back on the show and stuff. And uh, we're gonna end kind of early tonight. Um, I'm getting my headache back again from yesterday, so. All right. I'm, well, thanks for having me on, and I appreciate. Uh, thank you, Jason. Everybody for Thanks. listening, and uh, check out my books, darkseeds.com. Thanks. Will do. Thanks, Thanks, Jason. Good night, everybody. Good night.